Welcome to Energy Matters, where we explore alternative health in the Pioneer Valley. I'm your host, Caroline Rutterman, and I'm a Reiki professional and intuitive in Northampton, Massachusetts. For the past nine years, I've been teaching people how to use their intuition and helping them reduce stress and anxiety. Together, we'll talk with other practitioners and learn how they bring health and healing to the Pioneer Valley. Let's do this. Hey, welcome, welcome, everyone. You are listening to Energy Matters, and I am your host, Caroline Rutterman. We have a great show for you today. We are here with Katie Dixon-Gordon. So uh, let me unmute you. Oops, it's saying ask to unmute. Uh Maybe you might have to unmute yourself, Katie. I did. There we go. Sorry, you know, we're all learning Zoom still <laughs> seven years, seven months in, seven years in. Oh, gosh. Um, so anyways, Katie Dixon-Gordon, who is a, a researcher and a clinical psychologist and associate professor of clinical psychology at UMass. So welcome, Katie. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I don't think I've ever been on the radio before, oh, but well. I first heard your show. I thought maybe someday. <laughs> yes. Today is that day. Um, so, so Katie, tell us who you are and, and what you do over at UMass. Um, well, my name is Katie and I'm a clinical psychologist. And um, most of what I do is research. Um, I also train uh, graduate students in how to do psychotherapy. And I also teach undergrads, much like you used to be, Caroline, um, at UMass. So those are the different parts of my job. And so so you're here today talking about um, about CASEL, the, um, the clinical, uh, sorry, I have to pull out, there's a lot of acronyms. Clinical Affective Science Lab, yes, uh, which has the lovely acronym CASEL. So that's our research lab. Um, so my team and I work out of CASEL, which is uh, a research lab at UMass. And that is where we do a whole bunch of really cool research that is mostly focused on understanding how people get better in treatment. Um, and yeah, that's our, that's our passion. And so, so Castle is sort of the, the larger clinical lab that you are, are working with. And that's, that's kind of what fuels a lot of the research that you guys do. Yeah. Well, that's, that's us. That's just a fancy name for us that are doing the research. Um, and, uh, our focus is a little bit different than some of the other labs on campus. Our focus is on understanding um, what's going on when people are trying to regulate their emotions. So we do a lot of research on um, why it is that people feel the way they feel. Um, we study how people's emotions manifest in terms of their physiological responses, how they influence their decision-making and we um, study a lot of specific forms of mental illness that are associated with difficulties regulating emotions, like borderline personality disorder or BPD. Um, and we also study things like, um, you know, specific behaviors that people engage in when they're having trouble managing their emotions, like self-injury and other kinds of self-destructive behaviors. So what, what kind of, um, can you tell us a little bit about the, um, 
can you expand a little bit more on the self-destructive behaviors that kind of manifest with uh, when people are having a hard time regulating their emotions? Like, well, let, let's take a step back, actually. Um, when you're saying that people have a hard time regulating their emotions, how is that different than than the average person who feels really upset about something and, you know, like maybe has a has a drink at the bar with their friends um, or goes home and, you know, uses a little marijuana or meditates or goes for a walk or something like that? Like what what makes um, – can you tell us a little bit about like when somebody's really, yeah. really challenging to like regulate their emotions? Like what, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I love to study this is because I think it resonates for all of us. Like you said, we all have emotions and we all struggle with our emotions sometimes. So what, what's different for somebody who's suffering from psychopathology? Um, you know, I think it's really a matter of degree. I think about emotions as, um, the weather that day. And then if you're having a particular um, kind of form of mental illness or you're really struggling, that's kind of like the climate. So if you're having really severe or erratic or um, painful weather patterns all the time, then that might be the kind of thing that would lead you to work with somebody like me and maybe get some treatment. So I don't know that there's that much of a difference. You know, we all have emotions, we all have feelings, and and sometimes we might engage in a particular, you know, risky behavior to change our emotional state. Maybe we'll have a drink or something like that. Um, somebody who's experiencing more pain might do something a little bit more extreme. They might have 10 drinks or they might um, hurt themselves. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't know that, I, I think of it as being all that different. And so when you talk about sort of the extreme responses, like the the self-harm or or the 10 drinks, like you mentioned, um, what is, if, if the emotions or that kind of like harsher weather systems that are coming through more frequently as in terms of our emotions, what are the more extreme um, responses to, to those emotional weather systems look like? Yeah. I mean, they do, they just look bigger. They look um, more, more destructive and like they have, you know, more consequences, you know, afterwards people are like, Oh, you know, that, that really wasn't what I meant to do. And now I'm dealing with even more problems that I have to clean up. So, um, you know, I, I think it is something like maybe 10 drinks or maybe um, an emotional outburst that affects a relationship or, harming themselves directly or indirectly. And so some of the work that you do um, is around the dialectical behavior therapy um, or DBT as it's, I love all the acronyms. Uh, I'm trying to keep everything straight. <laughs> I'm like psychology if you're not talking in acronyms. <laughs> um, so uh, can you tell us a, lot, a little bit about the dialectical behavior therapy that you guys do, the DBT, um, within uh, the kind of uh, skill of the research that you do? What, what's that I all about? I love to talk about DBT all day, all the time. Um, so dialectical behavior therapy is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that was developed by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Um, and I think she developed it back in the eighties. And so 
this is actually a pretty interesting story. If you like hearing about psychology. I love hearing. That's why we're talking to you, lady. That is why you are here today. So share with us this good story. So, so this is the story. So Marsha Linehan, back in the 80s, was a passionate, passionate cognitive behavioral therapist. And she had actually had a personal history when she was... Um, when she was a teenager, she had been very suicidal and engaging in a lot of self-injury. And she didn't tell anybody this until much later when she was very successful. Um, but she was hospitalized for a long time at the Institute of Living um, in, in Connecticut. Um, and she, um, she ended up doing a lot of work herself and coming out of it and ultimately um, going on to get her PhD, and she was committed to saving people from suicide. So here she was, super hardcore behaviorist, wanting to save people from suicide. And she was like, oh, I'll just develop a cognitive behavioral therapy for suicidal women. And so she tried developing this treatment, and it was a total failure. Um, she would, people would come in, she would say, okay, I have just this solution for you. She'd give them specific, you know, change the way you think, change the way you act. And they would say, you don't understand. I've tried changing. I can't change. Hmm. Um, I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> right. Like, so then, you know, they would come back the next week and she'd say, okay, okay. What you need to do is first, we'll just accept, we'll accept where you're at. And they would say, I'm suicidal. My life is not worth living. I can't accept this. And that's when she stumbled on this idea of a dialectic, that this is about a dialectic of acceptance and change. And that's one of the many dialectics in DBT, that there's a kernel of truth in both sides. And we have to find a synthesis, a way of both accepting and changing. Um, so... So that's kind of the story of how this became dialectical behavior therapy. And what it is, is over time in many, many iterations and um, much trial tribulation, it became one of the um, most effective treatments out there for suicidal women. And it's since been brought into people with um, suicidal man, men, women, people with non-suicidal self-injury, people with borderline personality disorder, people with other forms of emotional disorders and emotional dysregulation. So um, really this is a treatment that's really good for helping people who are dealing with those out of control emotions, those really harsh weather systems that are leading to um, problematic behavior. So can you, can you walk us through what what a treatment would look like for somebody um, who is going through the dialectical uh, behavior therapy, the DBT. Um, what is what would a, an average session look like? Like how how does that is it? Are people are two people sitting across a table talking to each other? Is it like acting things out? Like what a, what does it look like? Yeah, yeah, all of those things. Um, so it is a comprehensive treatment. So there's weekly individual psychotherapy and weekly group skills training. And there's phone coaching between sessions, homework between sessions. Um, the therapists have their own consultation team to support them in delivering the treatment. 
So it's a, it's a pretty big treatment and it lasts for about a year. So it's, it's very intensive. It's, it's bringing people back from the edge. Right, right. This is, you know, you don't want to use a hammer to knock in a thumbtack and this is a big treatment for big problems. Yes. Um, Um, But it's super effective. So there, there's a weekly therapy, there's um, the, the group skills session, and then the therapist gets support behind the scenes, and then there's homework, and then there's, uh, there's all kinds of... So it's basically, there's something that this person should be doing more or less every single day. I mean, yeah. I would say, I mean, there is between session phone coaching, so sometimes... So the group skills training is about learning skills, right? So this is, the idea is that... Um, for a lot of folks, they have these big emotions often uh, as a result of maybe some, a little bit of biology, a little bit of trauma, um, a little bit of learning, you know, all of those come together to lead to somebody who has maybe a powerful emotional engine and not so great steering or braking mechanisms. Um, maybe they over rely on a couple of strategies. Maybe they tend to like suppress, 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 and then it explodes and maybe a, a way that leads to some bad outcomes for them. And so part of what we think about that leads to some of these problems is that maybe they don't learn from their parents or from their social systems. Um, maybe they never, maybe their parents don't have a lot of big emotions. And so they never saw the modeling of how to manage emotions in an effective way. Or maybe they um, learned early on that it was dangerous to express their emotions or that anytime you expressed emotions, it turns into this scary outburst. And so they just put them away. Um, So we think that one of the things we can do is increase their skills and in more effective ways of managing their emotions. And so the group skills training is about teaching specific emotion regulation strategies and teaching how to resist acting impulsively or potentially making the situation worse, teaching how to use interpersonal skills even when you're really upset. And the core skill is mindfulness. It's about increasing mindfulness across the board. And so that's what we're teaching in that group skills training every week. And sometimes between sessions, it's kind of hard. You're like in your life and you totally forget what you learned in school that week, right? So that's where we have the phone coaching where they can call their therapist and say, ah, what's that skill? I need help. Right. Um, yeah. And I think it's so interesting kind of what you talked on about like, you know, this concept of having skills to deal with our emotions. And, you know, I think the kids that are in in the school systems now have so much more mindfulness training and meditation and just like acknowledging that like they're feeling this way today versus that way. And it's totally a generational thing. I remember, um, you know, one of my one of my good friends was telling me a story about how he went to just simply hug his grandfather. This was when he was in his 20s. But he went to hug his grandfather and his grandfather was so taken aback that he was like getting touch. Like, like it literally just shared emotion that he threw his back out just from when his grandson was trying to go and offer him a hug. And, it, you know, it's like he that was not within his framework of masculinity, of expression, of emotion. And it was I mean, I mean, it's an extreme example, but 
I definitely think it's a generational thing. You know, like even still, like my mom talks all the time. It's like, oh, your dad is so much better than he used to be because she, you know, she drilled it into him. And, you know, they, they've had a, a marriage for, you know, almost 50 years. But it's it really it's, it's a skill. Dealing with your emotions is very much a skill. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm thinking about what you're saying about generational shifts and I'm thinking, you know, like in some ways, absolutely. And, and, and also even now, I think we're still often not taught how to manage our emotions. Maybe it's okay now that we have them or maybe it's more okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, there's definitely, you know, cultural, social, generational influences on, on what's okay to express and, and what's not okay and how we should be responding to our emotions. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Katie, I know you're, you're doing more research. Um, you know, you were just talking about this sort of very intensive year-long process of assisting people in skill development for dealing with really extreme emotions or sort of these, these weather patterns that you're talking about. So the research that you're doing um, is sort of breaking down to try to understand like what what the most effective pieces are of this this year long program that people would normally go through. Because I, yeah. I imagine that would be really I mean, if somebody is it has a family or trying to raise kids, I would imagine that a, a full year intensive program like that and trying to juggle work and all these kind of things could, could be pretty challenging to to succeed at. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, it's virtually impossible to find a full DBT program. Oh, right? Why why is that? Um, it takes a huge amount of training to get trained in DBT, and if you think about from a provider's perspective, they have to be able to offer the group, the individual, the phone coaching, they need to have a consultation team themselves. Um, so it takes a lot out from for both, you know, the provider and for the patients. It's a huge commitment on the part of the patients. Um, we're lucky in Western Massachusetts, actually, that we have a couple of full DBT programs. I, I uh, direct a training pro or a DBT program in our training clinic at UMass. Um, so we do have a DBT program in Amherst, and there's also a DBT program through ServiceNet. Um, but we're, we're very lucky in that regard. And even then, there's often long wait lists to get into treatment. And so it's really hard to access this treatment for a lot of people. And it's expensive. It's hard to get training. So one of the things I'm really interested in is, do we really need a year of treatment? Do we need a year of all of these different skills? Or could we are some skills maybe more important than others or more important for some people? So one of the studies that we're working on right now is a clinical trial to try and evaluate, you know, if we break this down into the separate skills components and we give people maybe just six weeks of one kind of skill or one piece of the treatment, um, do they get better just from that? And is there kind of like a, a matching component? Are, are some people going to benefit more from some skills? Because if we know that, then we can really kind of use this treatment in a really personalized way and mix and match just those pieces that that person needs and do it in a way that's going to be less expensive for the patients, 
more accessible. Um, so that's the goal of this, our current study. It's called the MAP DBT study, where we're trying to map which parts of the treatment might work best for different people. And so you guys are, are doing kind of online recruit or like ongoing recruitment to try to bring in folks because it's, it's totally free, right? To explore this. Yeah. Well, so yeah, it's funny. We were about to launch this study and then I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, global pandemic. Oh, I haven't heard about it. (laughs) Uh, But there is one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So of course we've pivoted everything to telehealth. So we're doing these telehealth groups. We actually pay people to participate because we ask them to, you know, come in and complete questionnaires and that's kind of a time suck. So um, we do pay people a little bit for their time there. Um, but yeah, right now we we are looking for participants. Um, so anybody who is interested in hearing more about the research generally, uh, our website is caslumass.com, castleumass but castle spelled wrong. Yeah, dot com. We also have a whole bunch of other information on that website in terms of other kind of work that we've been doing. And we like to post some resources about treatment there for folks who might be poking around just looking for, you know, where to access resources. Yeah. I was looking at some of the um, the research that you had posted and I saw that you had cross-referenced um, some of your friend and colleague colleagues work, uh, Nicole Weiss as well. Yeah. And yes. I just, you know, I just have to say on a personal note, I thought that was really, really cool that you um, that you cross reference um, another woman in research doing not exact, not exactly the same work, but work in tandem, because, you know, so often I think that like women's work gets unrecognized and just dismissed or, you know, sort of that that vainglory thing that kind of happens in in science where, you know, the, the head researcher or, you know, somebody else kind of takes credit. And it often is a man. So I, I really love that you because um, I, I just saw her her initials and her last name. And I was like, I, I think that's the I think that's Nicole. That's Nicole. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. She is a both a fabulous friend and an amazing researcher. Um, and I think we're really lucky in clinical psychology in particular, because, you know, we have had this major shift where um, where, you know, a lot of clinical psychologists are now women. Um, and that's, you know, as, as a researcher, that's less the case among researchers. And of course, the further up you go, the, the less true that is right. So female representation gets smaller and smaller, the, the more, um, kind of a leadership role people have. Um, so plus research is a labor of love and, it, I mean, emphasis on labor, right? So you share share the labor. So oh, I, I love collaborating. And some of my best collaborators are also my best friends. Yeah, why not? You know, I got to gotta work with people that you love and that you enjoy their company. Otherwise, you know, I mean, why bother? I was just telling some of my students this, you know, I was like, you know, the goal of life is, you know, you have a full plate, but you're supposed to have a full plate, right? Like the goal isn't to have an empty plate. The goal is to have a plate that is full of all of the things that you love and want to eat and 
that you cycle through it so it doesn't get stale. (laughs) A little variety of all the things that you love. Absolutely. (laughs) I love that. Um, So, you know, something that you had just mentioned a a minute ago, like why why do you think that clinical psychology is, is becoming more of a a female based field? Like what's, what's behind that? Well, that's a good question. Um, You know, the same is true of medicine um, that, you know, over the past several years, there's been a more of a shift to having more female representation. And a lot of folks simply describe this as, you know, they're helping professions um, that maybe there's some, some gender bias um, in who's gravitating towards helping professions. But also, you know, I think females make up more college graduates now too. So, right. Right. We're not necessarily at home required to maintain a household and, you know, fully responsible for uh, raising children, although that is the case. But, you know, maybe that happens a little bit later. So, you know, college grads can people can have the option to go to college and then decide where they want to go. We'll see what happens after the pandemic. I mean, that might set women in the workforce back. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. Um, Who knows? But, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's tough with a lot of people have kids at home. So, yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring it back a little bit. Um, you know, when, when you're talking about doing uh, this, this current research uh, under the, the DBT, can you, can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the aspects of DBT that you feel hopeful for, or that you really want to explore more? Like what are some of the specific techniques within this whole picture that you're, that you're curious about? These, these skills yeah. that are yeah trying so to build there's out. this it's this really big treatment right and um, so there's the individual therapy and I actually think there's some research to show and you know I love data so um, you know my gut instinct is one thing but data is just Mwah. the cat's meow so, <laughs> love it yeah um, so there is some research to show that that the group skills training is one of the most important parts that there's something about this, that, that what people are learning in the group. Now, of course, what the woman who invented the group, Marshall Linehan, she probably would say that it's the skills, that the skills are great. They're fantastic. I'll even tell you some of the skills, Caroline, in a second. Um, but there's more to the group than learning these skills, right? This is, you know, the often the first time that folks are in a room together with other people who are struggling with similar things um, and in a really non-judgmental way that's cultivating hope um, and allowing people to talk about this stuff. So really who knows which pieces of the puzzle are the most important. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I think also is that you're connecting with other people, just you're literally connecting with other people. And like, if you're feeling really alone, and that you're, you're disconnected from the joy of life, then like connecting with other people can really like bring you back from the edge. Especially for people who are struggling with these particular problems that often prompt them to seek DBT. You know, they're like among the most stigmatized issues, even among mental health professionals, right? Um, it's, you know, it's it's really hard to say, yes, I'm a person who struggles with self-injury or self-destructive behaviors or um, I'm suicidal or I have borderline personality features. Uh, I mean, all of those things are, I mean, mental 
mental health problems generally are stigmatized. It's a lot easier to say I broke my leg than I'm in therapy. Right. Um, I don't know if yeah. you ever uh, watch SNL, but um, Pete Davison, one of the uh, comedians, he is very, very like forthcoming about his own. I mean, he uses comedy, but he's very, very forthcoming about talking about his own mental health. And, you know, it's it's refreshing, but it's also like you see his struggles, but it's re- refreshing. You know, he, he just happens to have the the gift of comedy and writing and, you know, the, the platform of being you know, a national, international comedian. So yeah. And slowly we're seeing people who are kind of coming out, so to speak about having mental health struggles themselves. You know, Marsha Linehan is one of them where, but she waited until she was, you know, much later in life. Um, so, so yeah. So I think that there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle that we can kind of start to, to take apart and figure out how these treatments work. Um, so one piece might be that connection piece. Uh, another piece could be the, you know, the mindfulness piece. There's some research to show that, of course, we know mindfulness is so, so important. Um, and that it kind of buys you time between, you know, something happening and in your action. Right. Um, and so maybe by making that moment bigger and bringing some intention in there we can help people to actually kind of make more effective choices. So maybe it's the mindfulness piece. Um, I I think a lot of the long-term changes likely come from, you know, maybe some pieces of it are by acting um, differently and having kind of more clarity around your goals and interpersonal interactions and kind of feeding the relationships and acting in them in a way that's consistent with your values Um, and then the other piece is, you know, emotion regulation. I mean, there might be something about, you know, how to take care of your body, how to, you know, take an emotion in a moment and, and respond differently to it. So, you know, one of my very favorite skills is a skill called opposite action. Um, And this is a skill that I don't know if you remember the Seinfeld episode where, um, where he does like everything that's the opposite. Like George comes in and he realizes that him being George is a disaster. (laughs) He just tries one day just to do everything the opposite of what George would do. And things go really well. (laughs) So, so can you, can you walk us through like for, for people who are listening, um, can you walk us through what this exercise could look like if, you know, even if they're not dealing with extreme emotions, uh, can you, can you guide us through what that would look like? So opposite action is not a skill to use all the time. Opposite action is a skill to use when your emotion doesn't fit the current situation. How do you even know? How do you know? So step number one, figure out if your emotion fits the current situation. So for example, if you are feeling panicky and you're like, why am I panicky? Am I actually under threat? Like is something actually dangerous right now? If the answer is no, that panic probably makes perfect sense, but does not fit the facts. Gotcha. Okay. Right. But that takes some self-awareness to take that moment, to take yeah. that, to take that breath. That definitely, yeah. that's an important mindfulness piece. Yes. That's why mindfulness is the core skill for sure. 
So you take that moment, you say, okay, does like, maybe, I don't know, maybe you are going on Caroline's famous, super cool, fancy radio show. (laughs) Let's pretend that you are a guest on Caroline's super cool, fancy radio show. And you feel panic and you're like, Ooh, am I actually being threatened right now? Is there something dangerous here? So maybe, maybe I'm checking the facts or I mean, (laughs) hypothetically me. So maybe I'm checking facts and I'm like, okay, there's nothing actually dangerous here. What do I want to do? First, I have to check in. Like, what is this emotion making me want to do? It's making me want to run for the hills. I want to hang up. I want to run away. Um, I want to isolate. Maybe I want to avoid the situation. So then I just do the opposite. Which would be not avoiding, maybe showing up, sitting with it, bringing my panic with me. Or speaking the panic out loud instead of holding it in. I mean, just saying, I'm feeling not a part of it. Uh, yeah, really? That's not this skill. Okay. That's a different skill. Yeah. You're, you're three skills ahead of me. Okay. Because <laughs> sometimes just saying, like, I'm feeling really blah, 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 can, like, just let people other n- know where you're okay, at. Okay. So, first of all, there is literally brain imaging research that says that when you label an emotion, it reduces the intensity with which you have activity in the amygdala. Oh, that's so interesting. Like, literally just labeling it. But yes, different skill. So this is about, I think, entering into that situation and giving yourself the opportunity to learn that, that there's safety there and maybe even learn something else. Maybe you can learn that Caroline's radio show is pretty interesting and there's some fun jams and you kind of open yourself up to whatever else that moment has to offer. Oh, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. So that would, so the, the opposite action would be really take like experiencing a, an extreme emotion or even just it, feeling it really, really deeply mm-hmm. and saying like having, having a kind of a big reaction to it. And then basically just taking, taking a breath, taking your mindfulness moment and saying like, just assessing the situation and seeing if you can make a different choice instead of yeah. the, the one that you want to make. <laughs> You figure out what you want to do, and then you do the opposite. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's challenging. Right. That's really brave. That that takes yeah. some courage and some bravery, like for real. For real. My DBT clients are like the bravest people I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're just like learning these skills. Trying, I mean, this is one of the things that I love about about doing therapy is that like Anytime somebody comes in and they're like, yeah, I kind of want to change my life. You're like, whoa, that's a big deal. Yeah. Pretty impressive. What, what kind of things do you observe from, um, and I, I know that, you know, obviously you're, you're a psychologist and so there, there's a lot of confidentiality, but can you give us some examples about some things that you've witnessed that you've been really proud of, of your clients or some, some observations that of some success stories? Um, well, I won't give any specific success stories because of confidentiality. And I would hate for somebody to ever hear me talk about a client and recognize themselves. Of course. Um, but I will say, generally speaking, I mean, people, I've seen so many people like starting their own peer support groups 
become huge advocates for mm. mental health. Um, just turn things around and become other people's heroes. Mm. You know, um, a lot of times when people come into treatment, the, those are the darkest times they've had. You know, they're, they're often saying that this is their last try. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for them to be able to go from that to, you know, telling people how much hope there is and, and telling other people to kind of fight the darkness and fight the hopelessness, that's an amazing arc to see. Yeah, that must be really, really rewarding for you professionally and it, personally. It is. There is, yeah, there's no doubt. It's a great job. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so Katie, I'm, I'm so curious about what, what drew you to this work? Like, what drew you to this population of people? Like, what can you? I mean, in whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Um, but I'm, I'm so curious as to, as to what, what pulled you in. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm a Seahawks fan. I didn't know that. Um, well, I'm from Seattle, so yes. I. I didn't know you were a sports fan at all, but that that makes sense for you. I'm not. I'm not a sports fan. I'm just a Seahawks fan. Okay, good to know. I'll, I'm yeah. going to make a yeah. mental note. And and I think that that kind of I like to you know I I like want to support the the the, the people that are not being supported, right? Like the underdog has my heart every time, and. Um, I remember when I first read about borderline personality disorder, I was like maybe 10 years old. And the way that it was described, it was kind of mysterious, but then the prognosis was indicated as pretty poor. Um, That at that point in time, psychiatrists and psychologists didn't really know of a treatment. And even though the overall prevalence of BPD, you don't see it, you know, I mean, like the prevalence they think is about 6% uh, of the population. I think it's actually much, much higher. It's about 20, like 15% in college students. Um, and can you, and t- can you tell us it's what- much, much higher in terms of people who are seeking help, people who are in chronic pain clinics, it's like 25%. So. Oh, wow. So these are a lot of folks who are really seeking treatment because they're struggling. Yeah. Can you um, can you tell the audience, the listening audience, um, what is uh, what is borderline personality disorder? What is BPD? Uh, or how what does it express borderline personality disorder? Well, that's a great question. It's basically, um, I think of it as a disorder of emotion regulation. Like these are people who um, maybe have frequent or intense mood shifts who maybe have a lot of ups and downs in their relationships or who feel empty a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, people who often resort to kind of um, more extreme behaviors, maybe in an effort to regulate their emotions. So maybe more likely to use substances or, um, you know, drive recklessly or shoplift or any of those things that kind of give you a momentary mood shift. Gotcha. Uh, so that's, you know, there's also some other symptoms that go along with it, like, you know, frantic efforts to avoid abandonment or um, when under a lot of stress, maybe feeling a little spaced out. So those are all some of the symptoms of BPD. And you only need a handful of them in, action, in order to meet the diagnosis. Okay. Um, so the way that it was always talked about and what I read was 
this really long-term problem that, um, that folks didn't really know how to treat. And then when I was in college, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was working in a research lab. And I said, oh, tell me about that research lab. And he said, oh, it's a research lab uh, run by somebody named Marsha Linehan, who uh, developed a treatment for borderline personality disorder. And I was like, aha, this is somebody who, you know, this disorder who I'd which I'd heard was untreatable, basically, right. has actually had a treatment developed. A successful and one. A successful treatment. Not just any treatment, but a wildly successful treatment. And in fact, this was the first of a wave of treatments that were developed for borderline personality disorder. Um, there are now like four or five different treatments that have evidence to show that they treat borderline personality disorder. And in fact, most folks with BPD, maybe 70%, who meet criteria at one point in time, don't five years later. So this is what we know now about this disorder, that, wow. um, that it's actually immensely treatable. And even not in the context of treatment, we do see remission rates that are quite high. And, it, and it's, all, it's all like retraining the brain to feel the emotion, not feel the emotions, but to respond to the emotions differently without drugs. Right. Yeah. There actually is no medication for borderline personality disorder. There's no evidence-based drug. I love that. I mean, the the less drugs on this planet, the better, in my opinion. <laughs> Not that they don't have a place. I'm sure some for- of my clients would just as soon <laughs> have a pill that they could take. Um, but right now there isn't one. Um, but there are a number of um, of psychological treatments that work. Yeah. You know, it's it's so interesting to me because a lot of the things that you're talking about and you're you're bringing so much like science and research and data to the table and to me it this is so rooted in spiritual practices. I mean, in, from coming from my perspective because that's that's more of my own personal training and my own journey. Yeah, um, I don't think it's just from your perspective either. I mean, the developer of this treatment is a deeply spiritual woman. She's actually a Zen master. Oh, cool. In addition to being um, a Catholic, um, so the the treatment, you know, she wanted to kind of make it, a, you know, accessible to anyone, regardless of whether they have a particular spiritual orientation. Um, but it's filled with her spirit for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so much like I, I feel like you know the the mind, the emotions, the the whole system that to me is is the is the human journey is to like understand how to tame the brain and how to connect with ourselves on a deeper level and if you are born into this life not having the skills or the structure or even the chemistry to really have um you know that that balance then then your journey might look a little rockier than some other people, but you know it's it's really really refreshing to see that um, that science is is getting full on board with that too. Mm-hmm. Hmm, that's great. I also love that you like you know started you, you came across uh, you know this when you were like ten years old. Like I I, <laughs> I love that you like had that you were born with such a, a researcher you know thinker mind. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to say. I'm very consistent. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. 
Um, so, so tell, um, can you tell people again, if they might just be tuning in, um, how that they can learn a little bit more information about becoming a participant in some of the, um, the, the research that you're doing, uh, within DBT? Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of research out of UMass. Um, and our lab is the clinical affective science lab. And you can check out our website at C-A-S-L-U-M-A-S-S.com. So Castle, spelled wrong, UMass. So CastleUMass.com, C-A-S-L-U-M-A-S-S.com. And um, we have a whole bunch, we have some resources on, you know, where to find treatments locally. We have a little bit of facts on what we do. And if you're interested in participating, we do, we are actually recruiting currently for one of our research studies where we're providing, uh, six weeks of, of free telehealth treatment. And we actually pay, we, we do pay participants actually, because, you know, it's a lot of work being a participant in a research study. But. Yeah. And, you know, if, if somebody is listening, and this this might be a little bit of a delicate question. Um, if somebody is listening and they're like, oh, man, like, I would love my son or my daughter or my friend or my cousin or somebody that they really love to explore this, what, how how would you encourage or how do you bring it how, up how do you to even, a family member? Yeah, oh, well, this... Nobody, I have a PhD in this and I do not have enough training. Um, so, so I will say that these skills are useful for everyone. And there's actually data to show that family members of people with borderline personality disorder actually benefit from these skills themselves. So if you are a family member and you suspect that one of, somebody you love has borderline personality disorder, first of all, very little comes very little good comes out of diagnosing other people. As somebody who literally diagnoses other people for a living, I can tell you this. Hmm. Um, but there is something called family connections um, that is a free service that connects family members um, who have a loved one with BPD. And I and I definitely encourage you to check it out. So so just take care of yourself if you take suspect if you suspect somebody that you love or a family member is experiencing BPD just take care of yourself. Take care of yourself if you gently ask them if they are looking for treatment. I will say most people with BPD are hungry for change and treatment. Um, and so that's often because you know you can google, you know, Amherst and 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 BPD and probably my name pops up someplace. I do get a lot of phone calls from family members who are looking for resources and I'm always happy to answer the phone for them. Um, looking for treatment and connecting with treatment in our medical system is not an easy process. Um, so, yeah. And you know, we we only have a few minutes left, but if somebody is, is nervous and maybe, but very, very curious, um, and they, they go online to castleumass.com and they say like, okay, I'm, I'm curious about participating. What, what does that process look for like for them? Is somebody going to call them? Do they yeah, send it looks an email? Like they send an email and then we set up a phone call and we say, Hey, this is what the study is about. What do you think? Okay, cool. Do you have to actually have a, a diagnosis of um, 
you know, of borderline personality or do you, do you have to have some kind of official diagnosis to be part of the study? No, we actually do an assessment ourselves. You don't actually have to have BPD to be part of the study, but we do look for, you know, people who are struggling with managing their emotions. So we, we do all of that assessment piece. So don't need to worry about it. So a, a family member of somebody that has um, borderline personality disorder or something kind of it, some extreme emotions wouldn't necessarily qualify if they weren't it, experiencing it themselves. You, uh, yeah. P- participants who are struggling with maybe self-injury or out of control emotions, regardless of a diagnosis, um, could could contact us about participating. Awesome. Great. Um, and do you have any last words of wisdom that you want to throw out into the universe? It could be related to this or, or anything else that you feel inspired to, to share. Um, keep listening to Carolyn's very cool, fancy radio show because yeah. it is full of interesting information. <laughs> Great. Do you, do you have any, any other uh, words of wisdom that you want to <laughs> I'm all out. I'm spent. Yeah, you gave us. Well, I guess my one word of wisdom that I would want to share with folks is, you know, take a look at, at, I love research and I just encourage you all to think about like, what's the data on the treatment? If you're looking for therapy, it's a really hard process. It's hard to get in and, and take a look at what the research says. A lot of the times you'll be surprised by, um, how many effective treatments are out there. Um, so keep, keep up hope. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Katie. Um, and you know, if anyone listening is just kind of catching the end of the show in about a week, uh, you can go back on to Reiki Northampton.com, uh, backslash radio dash archives, and you can catch this episode, um, on that website, or you can also, if you're a podcast listener, uh, find the energy matters podcast. And these shows are always up about a week later. Um, but definitely check out uh, CASLUMass.org um, and, and dot, com. dot com. Yep, sorry, dot com. Um, and you can find out lots more information. Um, and have an amazing weekend, everyone, and be well.